0: It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for
1: nonsense, 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 nonsense. nonsense. The
0: show. The best damn
1: show you know! The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit
2: nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. <laughs> <Out of you.
3: laughs> Ain't nothing but against <laughs> the <laughs> party. Aw, oh, shit. <laughs> you done fucked up, Ain't nothing. You done put two of America's most wanted In the same motherfucking place At the same motherfucking and time <laughs> Y'all niggas about to feel this Break out this champagne the champagne glasses And motherfucking condoms Have one on us, alright Ain't nobody can stuff wrong Picture fun. perfect I paint a perfect picture Bama
2: hoochers with precision My intentions took get with you With that some double O P. Dog, my fucking homie Used a cold-ass nigga on the all Sure up, I keep my hand on my gun Cause they got me on the run Now I'm back in the courtroom waiting on the Tupac is always on the niggas mind But at the same time It seems they trying to take mine mm. So I'ma get smart And get defensive and shit And put together a million march For some gangsta shit So now they got a slate To multi-millionaire Motherfuckers catch a case mm. Bitches get ready for the down. The shit's about to go down uh, Me and Snoop about the clown <laughs> Right next to Chino, and I think I got a black memo but my dream is to own a flock casino like Bugsy Seagull Can <laughs> do it all legal and get scooped up by the little homie in the Riga. Hmm. it feel good to your baby bubble. You see, this is for the cheese and the keys, motherfucker.
3: Now follow as we ride, motherfucker. The rest <laughs> of the best from the west side, and I can.
0: Nonsense! The show, episode two forty three. Just a little bit of a gangster party up in here tonight. Thank you, Tupac. Thank you, Snoop Dogg, kicking us off on exactly the right note this evening. I mean, just feel it for a minute. Hmm. You, mm. hey, you want to move your shoulders? Hey, you want to dance a little bit? Mm. Come on. All right, that's enough of that. Thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate you. episode two forty three of Nonsense. The show is here. As always, my name is Captain Nick. I will be your ringmaster in this circus of the absurd and the historical and the mysterious and the funny and the musical. Tonight's episode, tentatively titled Nonsense 243, Double Agents, Dark Watchers, and the Men in Black. Dun, dun, dun. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight is going to be a very, very exciting episode chock full of mystery, intrigue, and wonder. Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week, number 30, is going to be our headliner tonight. The 1997 Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones classic, Men in Black. And I know what you're wondering. Yes, you're going to hear the song. Uh, The first of our two myth and mystery segments of tonight is going to be the elusive, the mysterious, the potentially dangerous Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. One of the more legendary monsters in the American folklore pantheon, but one that you may not know much about. And we're going to correct that tonight. Uh, Legendary figure tonight is a man you definitely haven't heard of called Juan Pujol Garcia. He was a double agent in World War II ostensibly serving the Germans, but very secretly and very determinedly, also spying for the British. I'll tell you more about him later. His story is remarkable. We'll do a quick little secondary myth and mystery segment because I found a story that was interesting that I wanted to share. You're going to hear about the dark watchers of the Central California Mountains. Mm-hmm. Haven't heard of them, have you? Well, you're about to. Tell you a little bit about what I've been watching, tell you a little bit about what I've been doing, my schedule. Uh, if we have time, we'll squeeze in some micro-nations, we'll talk about the captain's, va- uh, captain's Bounty, and we'll talk about, uh, well, season three of Nonsense, the show, which very well might be coming soon. Before we get into any of that, I want to give a quick shout out to my dear friend, my brother, and uh, the sponsor of this week's episode of Nonsense, the show, Patrick Brooks, down there at Paso Wineshine in Paso Robles, California. They're partnered up with a great group called the Tin City Distillery. They've got a tasting room. They've got brewing and distilling and handsome people and tight shirts and all the things you want in your alcoholic beverage-consuming experience. Reach out to Paso Wineshine, get you some booze. And uh, if you ask them nicely, they'll write, uh, write a nice compliment to you in the, uh, in the invoice. So, Paso Wineshine, thanks for sponsoring the show. Speaking of sponsoring the show, if you want to join the likes of Mill, Lee, Chauncey, my mom, Brittany, and lots and lots of others, Why don't you go ahead, jump onto patreon.com backslash nonsense the show, and throw a couple of dollars my way. Um, A dollar or two per episode goes a lot farther than you'd think for me as I try to take this little passion project and turn it into a money-making enterprise. I love making nonsense. I'd love for you to help me continue to make nonsense. Patreon.com backslash nonsense the show is how you do it. Additionally, if you don't want to give me money, but you do want to help out, why don't you tell your friends about Nonsense the Show? Leave a review. Leave a five-star rating. Those things help more than you would freaking believe. Uh, First of all, for motivating me, and second of all, for getting my podcast higher up the search algorithms so that new people can find it, which if you've been listening, you know is a goal of mine. More on that later when we talk about the Captain's Bounty. Before we go any deeper, though, why don't we go ahead and just dive into our first story of the evening, a myth and mystery segment that's going to curl your ever-loving toes. But we need to set the mood, and so let's see what the ghosts in my computer have for us tonight. Oh, that'll do. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the myth and mystery segment, where we will discuss the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, on on November 12th, 1966, in Clannenden, West Virginia, a group of grave diggers working in a cemetery, ooh, sounds like a horror movie, spotted something strange. I mean, listen, if you're going to be spotting something strange, doing it while you're digging graves is a pretty good way to do it. They glanced up from their work as something huge soared over their heads. According to their accounts, it was a massive figure that was moving rapidly from tree to tree inhumanly. The gravediggers would later describe the figure as, quote, a large brown human being. This was the first reported sighting of what would soon come to be known as the Mothman, an elusive creature that remains as mysterious now as it was on the night that a few frightened witnesses first laid eyes on it back in 1966. Just three days after the gravediggers' initial report in nearby Point Pleasant, West Virginia, Two couples noticed a white-winged creature about six or seven feet tall standing in front of the car that they were all sitting in. Eyewitnesses Roger Scarberry and Steve Mallett told the local paper, the Point Pleasant Register, that the beast had bright bright red eyes about six inches apart, a wingspan of ten feet, and the apparent urge to avoid the bright headlights of the car. According to these witnesses, the creature was able to fly at incredible speeds, perhaps as fast as 100 miles per hour. Contrarily, though, all of them agreed that the Beast was a clumsy an awkward runner while on the ground. They knew this only because it allegedly chased their vehicle to the outskirts of town while in the air and then, after landing, scuttled off into a nearby field and disappeared. Knowing how absurd this must have sounded to a local paper in a small Appalachian community in the 1960s, Scarbury insisted at the time that the apparition couldn't have been a figment of his imagination it just wasn't possible he assured the paper if i had seen it well by myself i wouldn't have said anything but there were four of us who all saw the exact same thing as is to be expected at first reporters were skeptical in the papers they called the mothman a bird or a mysterious creature However, they did print Mallet's description. Quote, It was like a man with wings. But soon more and more sightings were reported in the Point Pleasant area over the next year as the legend of the Mothman took shape. The Gettysburg Times reported eight additional sightings in the short span of three days after the first few claims. This included two volunteer firefighters who said they saw, quote, A very large bird with large red eyes. Newell Partridge, a resident of Salem, West Virginia, claimed that he saw strange patterns appearing on his television screen one night, followed by a mysterious sound just outside of his home. Shining a flashlight toward the direction of the noise, Partridge supposedly witnessed two red eyes resembling bicycle reflectors looking back at him. This anecdote remains a popular one in the Mothman mythos, especially since it allegedly led to the disappearance of Partridge's dog. To this very day, some still believe that the fearsome beast took his beloved pet. But, could there be a simple explanation for the mystery? Well, according to Dr. Robert L. Smith, an associate professor of wildlife biology at West Virginia University, so someone you would think would know a few things about this kind of stuff, uh, Dr. Smith dismissed the notion that a flying monster was staking out the town. Instead, he attributed the sightings to a sandhill crane, which stands almost as tall as the average man and has bright red flesh around its eyes. You can Google it and then imagine running into it in the, in the middle of nowhere in the dark. Maybe that's enough. This explanation was compelling, especially given the number of early reports that had described the creature as, quote, bird-like. Some people hypothesized that this crane was deformed, especially if it had resided in the, quote, TNT area, a name that locals gave a series of nearby bunkers that were once used for manufacturing munitions during World War II. It has been suggested that these bunkers have leaked toxic materials into the mm, neighboring wildlife preserve, possibly affecting nearby animals and creating the Mothman. Another theory suggests that the creation of the Mothman was the work of one very committed prankster who even went so far as to hide in the abandoned World War II munitions plant where some of the sightings were reported to have occurred. This theory, of course, posits that when the national press ran with the Mothman story, people who lived in Point Pleasant began to panic. God, there is a lot of plosives in this story tonight. Locals became convinced that they were seeing the Mothman in birds and other large animals at night even long after the prankster had given up on the joke. It is worth noting that the Mothman legend bears a resemblance to seven... Mm. (laughs) Let's start that sentence over. It is worth noting that the Mothman legend bears a resemblance to several demon archetypes found among those who have experienced sleep paralysis. Which may suggest that the visions are nothing more than the embodiment of typical human fears, pulled from the depths of the unconscious and grafted onto real-life animal sightings when people experience panic in the dark. And then, of course... There are the paranormal explanations. A morass of complicated theories that weave together aliens, UFOs, and precognition. These theories paint the Mothman as either a harbinger of doom, or, more sinisterly, its cause. A legend that has has its roots in the tragedy that befell Point Pleasant, shortly after the Mothman arrived. On December 15th, 1967, just over a year after the first Mothman sighting, Traffic was bad on the Silver Bridge. Originally built in 1928 to connect Point Pleasant, West Virginia to Gallipolis, Ohio, the bridge was, at the time, packed with cars. This placed a strain on the bridge, which had been built in a time when cars were made lighter. The Model T had weighed just 1,500 pounds, which was a modest sum compared to the 1967 average for a car. Some 4,000 pounds. The bridge's engineers hadn't been particularly imaginative, nor had they been especially cautious while creating this structure. The bridge's design featured very little redundancy, meaning that if one part failed, there was almost nothing in place to prevent other parts from failing as well. A chain reaction of destruction and eventually death. And on that cold December day, in 1967, that is exactly what happened. Without warning, a single eye bar near the top of the bridge on the Ohio side cracked. The chain snapped and the bridge, its careful equilibrium disturbed, fell to pieces, plunging cars and pedestrians into the icy water of the Ohio River below. Forty-six people died, either by drowning or being crushed by the wreckage. Following the Mothman sightings a year earlier, the bridge collapse was the second terrible and bizarre thing to put Point Pleasant on the map in a year's time. So it didn't take long for some to connect the two. In 1975, author John Keel conflated the Mothman sightings and the bridge disaster while creating his book, The Mothman Prophecies. He also incorporated UFO activity. His story took hold and soon the town became became iconic among conspiracy theorists, ufologists, and fans of the paranormal. And so with all of that behavior, all of those stories, rumors, myths, and legends, what is the legacy of the Mothman? Well, Point Pleasant's fame as the home of the Mothman legend hasn't waned in recent decades. In 2002, a movie based on Kiel's book rekindled interest in the Mothman legend. In the Mothman Prophecies uh, film, Richard Gere plays a reporter whose wife seems to have witnessed the Mothman shortly before her death. He finds himself inexplicably in point place several years later with no clue how he got there. And he's not the only one having trouble explaining himself. As several locals experience premonitions of distant disasters, there's talk of visitations from a mysterious figure called the Mothman. The film, a supernatural horror and mystery, offers no conclusions, communicating instead an eerie feeling of disjointedness that was both panned and praised by critics. Most notably, the film popularized the image of the Mothman as a harbinger of doom. The idea that visitations from the Mothman predicted disaster led some believers to make ties to the Chernobyl disaster of 1986, the Mexican swine flu outbreak of 2009, and the 2011 nuclear disaster in Fukushima, Japan. So whether there's any real connection or not, <clears throat> thanks to this movie and the myths, you know, since you know going back to 1975 and even back to its original sighting in the 60s, uh, people started connecting the Mothman to lots and lots of disasters around the world. With the idea being, well, he showed up and then something bad happened. It must have been because of him. As for sightings of the actual Mothman, though. Well, since the late 1960s, they've mostly declined. But every so often, a new sighting emerges. In 2016, a man who just moved from Point Pleasant spotted a mysterious creature jumping from tree to tree. He claimed to local reporters that he was unaware of the local legend of the Mothman, until he allegedly spotted the beast himself. whether these sightings are real or not, the Mothman can still be seen in Point Pleasant today in the form of a historical museum and also in the form of a 12-foot-tall chrome-polished statue complete with massive steel wings and ruby red eyes. Furthermore, a festival commemorating the Mothman's visits has has taken place annually for years. It's It's a fun celebration that attracts locals... And tourists alike. Every September, the festiv- festivities celebrate one of America's strangest local legends that still has people scratching their heads to this day. And so, what lesson should you take from the Mothman story? Well, I can't tell you that. That's up to you. All I know is that's the end of the first episode of our Myth and Mysteries segment in this episode of nonsense the show the word episode was used improperly in one of those phrases uh we're gonna go ahead and throw it over to queen with i want it all while i rest my throat take a sip of beer and prepare for our next story nonsense 243 thanks for being here freddie take it away Freddie Mercury and thank you, Queen, for I Want It All. One of my personal favorite songs in the history of ever. I Want It it All. As always, we are grateful for the stolen music that makes this show possible. (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, heading into our next segment here on episode 243 of Nonsense the Show. I'm having a good time. And I sure as hell hope you are, too. I am now going to tell you the story of a legendary figure by the name of Juan Pujol Garcia. He was a famed double agent of World War II and one of the more interesting characters whose story I have found related to that incredible world-changing event. Juan Pujol Garcia, member uh, of Knights of the British Empire, was born February 14, 1912 and died October 10, 1988. He was a Spanish spy who acted as a double agent loyal to Great Britain against Nazi Germany during World War II when he relocated to Britain to carry out fictitious spying activities for the Germans. He was given the code name Garbo by the British. Their German counterparts codenamed him Alaric and referred to his non-existent spy network as Arabal. After developing a loathing of political extremism of all sorts during the Spanish Civil War, Pujol decided to become a spy for Britain as a way to do something, quote, For the good of humanity. Pujol and his wife contacted the British Embassy in Madrid, which rejected his offers offers to spy for them. Undeterred, he created a false identity as a fanatically pro-Nazi Spanish government official and and successfully became a German agent. He was instructed to travel to Britain and recruit additional agents, but instead he moved to Lisbon, Portugal created bogus reports about britain from a variety of public sources including a tourist guide to britain train timetables cinema newsreels and even magazine advertisements although the information would not have withstood close examination pool soon established himself as a trustworthy agent he began inventing fictitious sub-agents who could be blamed for false information and mistakes thus protecting his cover the Allies finally accepted Puhol when the Germans spent considerable resources attempting to hunt down a fictitious convoy. Puhol and his handler a man by the name of Thomas ha- <laughs> Thomas Harris spent the rest of the war expanding the fictitious spy network, communicating to the German handlers at first by letters and later by radio. Eventually due to their hard work and diligence by craft, the Germans were funding a network of 27 agents all fictitious, and all secretly working against the German cause. Most importantly, Pujol had a key role in the success of Operation Fortitude, the deception operation intended to mislead the Germans about the timing, location, and scale of the invasion of Normandy in 1944. You might have heard of it. The false information Pujol supplied helped persuade the Germans that the main attack would be in the Pas de Calais, pardon my French, so that <laughs> so that they kept large forces there before and even after the Normandy invasion. Pujol had the distinction of receiving military decorations from both sides in the war, being awarded the Iron Cross and becoming a member of the Order of the British Empire. So he was awarded two of the highest decorations each nation could, could give, making him one of the only known people who received uh, major decorations from both sides during World War II. A fascinating story, and now I'm going to give you details. In 1931, Pujol did his six months of compulsory military service in a cavalry unit, the 7th Regiment of Light Artillery, in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, During this time, he realized he was unsuited for a military career, hating horse riding and claiming to lack, quote, the essential qualities of loyalty, generosity, and honor necessary to be a successful soldier. Eventually, Pujol was managing a poultry farm north of Barcelona in 1936. When the mm, I'm sorry, forgive me. He did his six months of compulsory military service prior to the war. The war had not started yet. He did his service, realized he wasn't cut out for it, and went on to farming chickens. There, we've corrected my mistakes. Now, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War began while he was managing said poultry farm. His sister Elena's fiance was taken by Republican forces, and later she and his mother were arrested and charged with being counter revolutionaries a relative in a trade union was eventually able to rescue them from captivity. Following this event, he was called up for military service on the Republican side, in opposition to Francisco Franco's nationalists, but opposed the Republican government due to their treatment of his family, which you just heard about. He hid at his girlfriend's home until he was captured in a police raid and imprisoned for a week, before being freed by the traditionalist resistance group Socorro Blanco. They subsequently hid him until they could produce fake identity papers that showed him to be too old for military service. And thus, he dodged a bullet of serving in a war and for a cause he did not believe in. Once again, he started managing a poultry farm, this one that had been requisitioned by the local Republican government, uh, but it was not economically viable. And this experience with rule by committee intensified his antipathy toward communism and the Republican government. So still, living under uh, his false identity papers, he rejoined the Republican military using said false papers, with the intention to desert as soon as possible. He volunteered to lay telegraph cables near the front lines in order to facilitate this escape. He managed to desert to the nationalist side during the Battle of the Ebro in September of 1938. However, he was equally ill-treated by the nationalist side disliking their fascist influences and being struck and imprisoned by his colonel upon Pujol's expression of sympathy with the monarchy. So on both sides of this war that he was stuck in and could not escape, he found he hated uh, both positions. He didn't like the people, he didn't like the way they operated, he didn't like their ideals, and he didn't like the way they treated both him and the people he cared about. His experience with both sides of this conflict left, left him with a deep loathing of both fascism and communism, which of course by extension led to a deep loathing of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. He was proud that he had managed to serve both sides without firing a single bullet for either. Just a few short years later, in 1940, during the early stages of World War II, Puhol decided that he must make a contribution for the good of humanity by helping Britain, which was, at the time, Nazi Germany's only adversary. Starting in January 1941, he approached the British embassy in Madrid three different times, including through his wife, although he later edited her, part her participation out of his memoirs. But they showed no interest in employing him as a spy, thinking that he did not have the connections, the influence, or the information that would have made paying him or the risk worthwhile. Therefore, he resolved to establish himself as a German agent before approaching the British again, to offer his services as a double agent, which is the most logical explanation. It's not, hey, let's go find some contacts. It's, okay, I'm going to join the enemy, and then I'll come back, and I'll be like, hey, I'm going to spy for you guys now instead. He's playing a dangerous game here. Pujol created an identity as a fanatically pro-Nazi Spanish government official who could travel to London on official business. He also obtained a fake Spanish diplomatic passport by fooling a printer into thinking he worked for the Spanish embassy in Lisbon. He then contacted Friedrich Knapp Brady, an Abwehr agent in Madrid, codenamed Federico. The Abwehr accepted Puhol and gave him a crash course in espionage, including secret writing. They also gave him a bottle of invisible ink, a code book, and six hundred pounds for expenses. His instructions were to move to Britain and recruit a network of British agents to feed knowledge back to the Germans. However, instead of going to London, he moved to Lisbon and, using a tourist guide to Britain, Reference books and magazines from the Lisbon Public Library, as well as newsreel reports he saw in cinemas, he created seemingly credible reports that appeared to come directly from London. During his time in Portugal, he stayed in Estoril at the Hotel Palacio. He claimed to be traveling around Britain and submitted his travel expenses based on fares listed in a British railway guide. During this time, he created an extensive network of fictitious sub living in different parts of Britain. Because he had never actually visited the U.K., he made several elementary mistakes uh, in these reports, such as claiming that his alleged contact in Glasgow would do anything, quote, for a liter of wine. Being completely unaware that Scottish drinking habits at the time meant that they did not drink wine, they drank whiskey, and that uh, the U.K. did not at the time use the metric system. Uh, His reports were intercepted by the British Ultra Communications Interception Program and seemed so credible that the British counterintelligence service, MI5, launched a full-scale spy hunt. So not only did these, uh, these, these reports, even with their elementary mistakes, fool the Germans, when they were intercepted by the British, they fooled them too. To the point that they thought, oh shit, we have a legitimate spy in our midst. Thus, the British had become aware that someone had been misinforming the Germans and realized the value of this after the Kriegsmarine wasted resources attempting to hunt down a non-existent convoy reported to them by Pujol. So now the British found out about this guy. They started uncovering some information, and through the the, the dispatches that he sent, they realized, like, well, this guy is feeding them bad information. Holy shit, this guy might actually be on our side and after he caused them to waste a ton of resources and manpower chasing down this non-existent convoy, they approached. He was moved to Britain on April twenty-fourth, 1942, and he was given the code name Bavril after the drink concentrate. However, after he passed the security check conducted by MI6 officer Desmond Bristow, Bristow suggested that he he be accompanied by an MI5 officer called Tomas Harris, who was a fluent Spanish speaker. Uh, who would be there to brief Pujol on how he and Harris should work together. Pujol's wife and child were, of course, later moved to Britain with him. And then he commenced operating as a double agent under the XX committee's aegis. Cyril Mills was initially Bovril's case officer, but he spoke no Spanish, and thus quickly dropped out of the picture. His main contribution, though, was to suggest, after the truly extraordinary dimensions of Pujol's imagination and accomplishments had become apparent, that his codename should be changed as befitted, The best actor in the world. And so Bovril, the drink concentrate, became Garbo, after Greta Garbo, the famed actress. Mills passed his case over to the Spanish speaker, Officer Harris. Together, Harris and Pujol wrote 315 letters, averaging 2,000 words, addressed to a post office box in Lisbon supplied by the Germans. His fictitious spy network was so efficient and so verbose that his German handlers were overwhelmed and made no further attempts to recruit additional spies in the UK. So he and his, and his case agent, this, this, this agent Harris, they wrote 315 letters of 2,000 words each. That's a lot of pages. And they just started bombarding the Germans with them to the point where they go, hey, we've got too much to handle just from this guy and his ring. We don't need more agents. And so that effectively gave him a stranglehold on the German spying network in Britain, which made him all the more powerful, all the more influential, and all the more effective. The information supplied to German intelligence was a mixture of complete fiction, genuine information of little military value, and valuable military intelligence, artificially delayed. In November 1942, just before Operation Torch Landings in North Africa, Garbo's agent on the River Clyde reported that a convoy of troop ships and warships had left port, painted in Mediterranean camouflage. While the letter was sent by airmail and postmarked before the landings, it was deliberately delayed by British intelligence in order to arrive too late to be of any use. Pujol received a reply stating, We are sorry they arrived too late, but your last reports were magnificent. So he arranged this ingenious system in which he was able to provide real intelligence of a high value to the Germans. And just through a little bit of finagling and a little bit of delays, he was able to make sure it showed up a day late, two days late, so that the Germans were like, man, this guy's really good. It just didn't get here in time. So his credibility is further established. His trustworthiness further cemented. Pujol had been supposedly communicating with the Germans via a courier, a Royal Dutch Airlines pilot willing to carry messages to and from Lisbon for cash. This meant the message deliveries were limited to the KLM flight schedule. In 1943, responding to German requests for speedier communication, Pujol and Harris created a fictitious radio operator. And from August 1943, radio became the preferred method of communication between the spies and the Germans. Of course, this meant on occasion he had to invent reasons why his agents had failed to report easily available information that the Germans would eventually know about. For example, he reported that his fabricated Liverpool agent had fallen ill just before a major fleet movement from that port, and so was unable to report the event. To support this story, the agent eventually, quote, died, and an obituary was placed in the local newspaper as further evidence to convince the Germans of its truth. As another example of Pujols' genius, the Germans were also persuaded to then pay a pension to the agent's widow. There never was an agent, and there never was a widow. This was just money lining the pocket of Mr. Pujols' Garcia for all of his hard work. <laughs> for radio communication, Alaric needed the strongest hand encryption the Germans had. The Germans provided Garbo with this system, which in turn supplied to the co- was supplied to the codebreakers at Bletchley Park. Garbo's encrypted messages were to be received in Madrid, manually decrypted, and re-encrypted with an Enigma Enigma machine for retransmission to Britain. Mm, Oh, boy. Garbo's encrypted messages were to be received in Madrid, manually decrypted, and re-encrypted with an Enigma machine for retransmission to Berlin. So he would send them to Madrid. They'd be all decrypted, re-encrypted with a different code, and then sent to the high command in Berlin. Now, having both the original text and the Enigma-encoded intercept of it, the codebreakers at Bletchley Park had the best possible source material for a chosen plaintext attack on the Germans' Enigma Key, which, of course, was one of the keys to winning the war and ending the Nazi scourge on Europe in the 1940s. And now to Mr. Garcia's... Largest contribution to the war effort, in January 1944, the Germans told Pujol that they believed a large-scale invasion in Europe was imminent, and they asked to be kept informed of anything he might learn. This invasion was, of course, Operation Overlord, and Pujol played a leading role in Operation Fortitude, the deception campaign to conceal Overlord. He sent over 500 radio messages between January 1944 and D-Day. At times, more than 20 messages per day. Now, during planning for the Normandy beach invasion, the Allies decided that it was vitally important that the German leaders be misled into believing that the landing would happen at the Strait of Dover. In order to maintain his credibility, it was decided that Garbo, or one of his agents, quote-unquote, should forewarn the Germans of the timing and some details of the actual invasion of Normandy, although, as was tradition, sending it just too late for them to take any effective action. Special arrangements were made with the German radio operators to be listening to Garbo through the night of, of June 5th and June 6th, 1944, using the story that a subagent was about to arrive with vitally important information. However, when the call was made at 3 a.m., no reply was received from the German operators until 8 a.m. This only enabled Garbo to add more, genuine, but now out-of-date operational details to the message when finally received, and thus increase his standing once again with the Germans. Garbo told his German contacts that he was disgusted that his first message was missed, saying, I cannot, accept, I cannot accept excuses or negligence. Were it not for my ideals, I would abandon the work. Essentially telling them, you're incompetent morons, and if it wasn't for the fact that I believe in this so much, I'd be out of here because you guys are terrible at your job. I mean, just a masterstroke. On June 9th, three days after D-Day, Garbo sent a message to German intelligence that was passed on to Adolf Hitler himself and the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, the OKW, or the German High Command. Garbo said that he had conferred with his top agents and developed an order of battle showing 75 divisions in Britain. In reality, there were only about 50, so he increased their numbers just a little bit. Part of the Operation Fortitude plan was to convince the Germans that a fictitious formation... The first U.S. Army group, comprising 11 divisions of 150,000 men commanded by legendary General George Patton, was stationed in Southeast Britain. This deception was supported by fake planes, inflatable inflatable tanks, and vans traveling about the area, transmitting bogus radio chatter. So it was a very, very elaborate ruse. Garbo's message pointed out that units from this formation had not participated in the invasion, and therefore the first landing should only be considered as a diversion. A German message to Madrid sent two days later said all reports received in the last week from Arabell undertaking ha- from the Arabell undertaking have been confirmed without exception, and are to be described as especially valuable. In a post-war examination of German records, it found that during Operation Fortitude, no fewer than 62 of Pujol's reports were included in the High Command Intelligence Summaries, which tells you exactly how seriously they took everything he was sending. The High Command accepted Garbo's reports so completely that they kept two armored divisions and 19 infantry divisions in the Pas de Calais, waiting for a second invasion throughout July and August of 1944. So for two and a half, almost three months... They kept a huge number of of troops and equipment out of the fight because they believed in these orders, these reports, so thoroughly. The German commander-in-chief of the Westfield Marshal, Gerd von Rundstedt, refused to allow General Erwin Rommel to move these divisions to Normandy. There were were more German troops in the Pas-de-Calais region two months after the Normandy invasion than had been there on D-Day. So imagine, if those reports had not come in, all of those troops could have made it to to Normandy, either on or shortly after D-Day, and it could have changed the entire course of the war. I, I mean, the, you, you cannot overstate the importance of of, of Garbo Pujols' role in, uh, in Operation Fortitude. In late June, Garbo was instructed by the Germans to report on the falling of a of VW flying bombs. Finding no way of giving false information without arousing suspicion and being unwilling to give correct information, Harris arranged for Garbo to be, quote, arrested. He returned to duty a few days later, now having a need to avoid London, and forwarded an official letter of apology from the Home Secretary for his unlawful detention. So again, another elaborate ruse played with the highest orders in the land. Over the time that uh, Puol was spying for the Germans, he was paid approximately 340,000 US dollars to support his network of agents, which at one point totaled 27 fabricated characters. As Alaric, he was awarded the Iron Cross second class on 29 July 1944 for his services to the German war effort. This award was normally reserved for frontline fighting men and required Hitler's personal authorization. Uh, because of his unique situation, the Iron Cross was presented via radio. And as Garbo, he received an MBE from King George VI on 25 November 1944, just a few months later. The Nazis, never realizing they had been fooled, and thus Pujol earned the distinction of being one of the few, if not the only one, to receive decorations from both sides during World War II. And now... In a tribute to Mr. Poohole there And uh, for this week's edition of the Schmoop Song Damn, This is the Ghetto Boys Damn it feels good to be a gangster See you guys in about uh, Well about five minutes We'll get on with the show Thanks for being here
3: Damn it feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster ass nigga plays his cards right. A real gangster ass nigga never runs his fucking mouth. Cause real gangster ass niggas don't start fights. And niggas always got a high cap. Showing all his boys how we shot him. But real gangster ass niggas don't flex nuts. Cause real gangster ass niggas know they got him, And everything's cool in the mind of a gangster. Cause gangster ass niggas think deep. Up 365, I your 24/7. It's real gangster ass niggas. Don't sleep. And all I gotta say to you, wanna be, want to be cocksucking pussy eatin pranksters. Is when the fire dies down, what the fuck you gonna do? Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. <laughs>
2: Gangster, feeding the poor and helping out with their bills although i was born in jamaica now i'm in the u.s making deals damn it feels good to be a gangster i mean one that you don't really know riding around town in a drop top Benz, sitting switches in my black '64. now gangster ass niggas come in all shapes and colors some got killed in the past but this gangster here was a smart one Started living for the Lord and I last Now all I gotta say to you, wanna be gonna be pussy and cocksucking pranksters When the shit jumps off, what the fuck you gonna do? Damn, it feels good to be a gangster
3: A gangster ass nigga pulls the trigger and his partners in the posse ain't telling off shit. Real gangster ass niggas don't talk much. All you hear is the black from the gun blast. And real gangster ass niggas don't run for shit. It's real gangster ass niggas can't run fast. And when you in the free world talking shit, you the shit. Hit the pin and let a motherfucker shank you. But niggas like myself kick back and peep gang. Cause damn, it feels good to be a gangster. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it
2: feels good to be a gangster Getting voted into the White House Everything looking good to the people of the world But the market family is my boss So every night then I hold a favor here and there Like letting a big drug shipment through And send them to the poor community So we can bust you know who The voters of the world keep supporting me And I promise to take you very far me, I'll send a million troops to die at war, it's all you republicans that helped me to win, I sincerely like to thank you, cause now I got the world swinging from my nuts,
0: and damn it feels good to be a gangster. And that ladies and gentlemen is Damn It Feels Good To Be A Gangster, this week's Schmoot song. Thank you ghetto boys We appreciate you I mean that's just a damn classic And of course it means that at some point soon We are going to be talking about uh, about none other Than office space Yep you know it At some point that's going to happen It's just not going to be tonight Okay? Okay uh, Let's very quickly do one more Myth and Mysteries segment Let me go ahead and just uh, do
1: You are about to experience the awe and mystery that reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits.
0: <laughs> that one doesn't get used very often. I just wanted to get it in here. Uh, one more quick dark uh, myth and mystery segment before we dive into the Captain's Film Institute, and I uh, give you guys a little, little talking to, some things on my mind here. Uh, looks like we're going to run out of time for the micronations. I'm so sorry, Lee. I'm so sorry, Emily. Um, still no entries in the, in the, uh, the Captain's Bounty. I don't know why y'all don't want 100 bucks. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if y'all are just busy or if you don't like the show very much. All I'm saying is there's $100 up for grabs, and so far I have zero entries. Not one single entry in the Captain's Bounty uh, email sweepstakes. So uh, all you got to do is tell your friends to listen to the show. Have a friend listen to an episode and then email me. Tell me what they liked. Include your name. You'll get a tally mark. You can tell them you're going to share the money with them. You can buy them lunch. You can do whatever the fuck you want. All I'm saying is... You just get your friends to listen to the show, you can win a hundred bucks. It's not that hard. You should do it. Okay? Okay. Good talk. Captain's Bounty. Check, check. Uh, The Dark Watchers. The Santa Lucia Mountains are a marvel to behold. But as the mountains rise into the California skies with an endless ocean before them, shadowy figures sometimes materialize on the afternoon horizon above them. Shadowy figures known as the Dark Watchers known to 18th century spanish settlers as los los vigilantes obscuros or the dark watchers these featureless silhouettes appear like witches with brimmed hats and walking sticks in hand oral tales across generations warn that approaching these specters could result in one's disappearance though modern science has suggested that the dark watchers might simply be the result of a hallucination the phenomenon is no less mystifying or terrifying. Tales of the Dark Watchers are often attached to the Chumash people of California, but apparently these indigenous Americans don't actually have anything quite like these specters in their folklore. According to the accounts of Spanish settlers, however, who recorded, uh, who recorded the massive beings in the late 1700s. The creatures towered over mere mortals at 10 feet tall and appeared to be draped in cloaks and donned donned large, wide-brimmed hats across their heads. Folklore warns that while Dark Watchers make it their mission to sternly observe those in the mountains below, it is wisest to turn away, as those who dared to approach these figures vanished into oblivion. Unfortunately, tales of the Dark Watchers are about as vague as the shapes themselves, but 20th century authors like John Steinbeck added their own mythos around the phenomenon. Like many other California writers, Steinbeck grew up on stories of the Dark Watchers. His own mother told him how she would bring food to the mountains as an offering to the creatures, only to later find flowers in their place. Other writers, like Central California poet Robinson Jeffers, also added to the legend of the Dark Watchers through his own imaginings. Jeffers described the Dark Watchers as, quote, "...forms that look human to human eyes, but certainly are not human." He noted that they come from behind ridges to watch and are known to emerge from the quiet twilight before they melted into the shadows. Is there a scientific explanation for the Dark Watchers? Could there be a logical, reality-based explanation for these mysterious creatures? These massive, ominous beings in the hills? While there is no physical evidence to prove that these figures are anything more than visual anomalies... Many people have snapped intriguing photos of them. From these photographs, some scientists have tried to determine what it is that people think they have seen. One such theory is that the Dark Watchers are simply the result of. mm, Give give me a second on this word. Pareidolia. mm, (laughs) Pareidolia. Pareidolia. Oh my God, there it is. Pareidolia. Sometimes you can spell it. Jesus, words are hard. Sip a beer for a professional broadcast. (laughs) Pareidolia, there it is. A psychological phenomenon during which human brains seek out recognizable or familiar patterns and shapes in an otherwise alien or unclear image. So essentially it's it's this feature in our brains that takes something that we really can't make sense of and starts trying to pull familiar shapes and familiar ideas out of it. The phenomenon is known to German locals of the Harz Mountains as the Bracken Spectre. So they have a similar being over there in Germany. Named after the regional Bracken Peak, the phenomenon sees an observer's magnified shadow plastered across the clouds. The mist, meanwhile, amplifies the shadow's size before it evaporates, offering a potentially scientific explanation for these creatures. Maybe it's just your own shadow and an optical illusion. Of course, many encounters with the Dark Watchers might also just be the the shadows of swaying trees. Curiously, these purported beings are always encountered at high altitudes where oxygen supply to the brain is hampered. Could the Dark Watchers simply be a hallucination or a widespread misconception about the nuanced world we live in? Like uh, faces on the moon or the Virgin Mary on toast? People can often look for humanity in even the most obscure and mundane situations. Or perhaps one day a team of experts will venture to the Santa Lucia mountains and return with irrefutable evidence that the Dark Watchers are real, shadowy creatures and want to remain in peace.
2: MIBs. Here come the in yeah. won't let you nah, nah, nah. The good guys dressed in black. Remember that, just in case we ever face to face and make contact. The title held by me, the MIB. M-I-B. What you think you saw, you did not see So don't blink, be what was dead Is now going black suit with the black ray bands on Walking shadow, moving silence Guard against extraterrestrial violence But yo, we ain't on no government list We straight, don't exist, no names and no fingerprints Saw something strange, watch your back Cause you never quite know where the MIBs is at Uh, eh the horizon, bright light into sight, tight camera zoom on the impending doom, but then like boom, black suits fill the room up, with the quickest, talk with the witnesses, hypnotize up, normalize up, vivid memories, turn to fantasies, ain't no MIBs, cannot please? do what we say, that's the way we kick it, Yeah, you know I mean, let's see the noisy cricket get wicked on you, with your first, last, and only line of defense against the worst scum of the universe, so don't fear us, cheer us, if you ever get near us, don't jeer us, we're Bees squeezing the ball to black. What does that stand for? Men in black. Uh, and,
1: and. The men in black.
0: Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for entry number 30 into the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week. And as you may have guessed, because I've already told you, it's 1997. The Barry Sonnenfeld-directed Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones, Linda Fiorentino, Rip Torn, and Vincent D'Onofrio classic is about to air for the first time. Living secretly in our planet by assuming human form, a plethora of extraterrestrial refugees and all. Mm, refu- <laughs> a plethora of extraterrestrial refugees of all shapes and colors peacefully coexist with the inhabitants of Manhattan. However, the rebellious and malevolent ones are kept under control by the secret government organization called the Men in Black. Under those circumstances, the veteran Agent K and the agent, and the agency's newest record... <laughs> Good fucking Lord. And the agency's newest record... <laughs> Words are hard. Agent J, Will Smith, will soon have their work cut out for them when an interplan- interplanetary visitor hatches an evil scheme to conquer the galaxy. But can two men in black suits alone avert an impending disaster of global proportions? Tune in to find out. Um, you know, weirdly, as I was starting that, that summary of the film, I got to, um, a plethora of extraterrestrial, and I thought to myself, man, you're doing a good job at this. You've had a few beers, your brain is tired, your mouth is not working well, um, you're really putting these words together well, and then I got to the word refugees, and my brain desperately wanted me to call them refugies. I don't know why, so that's just where, and then the whole paragraph got thrown off, so, (laughs) There's my explanation. (laughs) Um, Every week when we do the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week, I I choose three categories. There are three categories that are regularly done. Favorite line, favorite scene, and favorite character. My favorite character in this one is is really easy. It's got to be Jay. Jay. I mean, he's, he's, he's the wisecracker, he's, uh, he's the cool guy, it's Will Smith at his fucking best. If you're not going to pick a main character, it's definitely Frank the Pug, just because a foul-mouthed little dog is, is adorable to me. My favorite line in the movie is the obvious, used in all the marketing material, used to be said amongst all of my friends because we thought we were dope even though we were nerds. You know the difference between me and you? I make this look good. Uh, My runner up now that I'm an adult uh, Is Tommy Lee Jones responding to uh, Edgar the alien bug Suits wife Uh, No ma'am we at the FBI do not have A sense of humor that we're aware of Just because I used to work For the government and that's the type of thing I used to say my favorite scene is uh, This was an easy one for me This was a fucking no brainer there's only one scene That stands out as, as my favorite scene In the movie um, it's the interview process. Jay walks into the MIB building as a total fish out of water amongst the best of the best of the best, sir. He works his way through the tests provided and the trials offered in an unorthodox fashion, which is in stark contrast to the institutionally rigid approach of his military compatriots. He's got a lack of, uh, uh, of respect for authority. He's got a smart mouth and a, and a little bit of a wise-ass goofball persona. And he's a little bit of a bumbling screw-up, but he's really good at what he does. Um, and so, you know, a couple of examples. Obviously, as, as they're taking the test and he drags that fucking table across. And in this silent room with all these awkward dudes in, in uniform, the scraping of the table is just one of those things that never fails to make me laugh. Um, and then the shooting range scene where Jay assesses all of the threats. Uh, according to the novelization of the film, James is correct to only shoot Tiffany, the cardboard cutout. On the MIB firing range She is actually a dangerous alien in disguise While all of the other aliens around her Are completely harmless And as you get deeper into the movie You find out that a lot of the aliens Are just regular people Is the word I'm going to use Going about their lives doing their thing Um, And then there's a couple of assholes And in this case Jay correctly assessed the situation Under incredibly stressful um, You know, unsure uh, 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 conditions and uh, really should be commended. He's, it's clear, clear why he got the job, right? Um, I love his lack of respect for authority. That's just something that I enjoy. Vincent D'Onofrio researched his role as Edgar by watching a lot of bug documentaries. In order to achieve his character's distinctive herky-jerky awkward walk, he put on knee braces so he couldn't bend his legs, and he taped up his ankles, which further limited his range of motion. And, of course, the results of that are apparent every time he has a walking scene. Um, The known aliens visible on the screen When uh, Jay is being introduced To the world he is now walking into Um, Al Roker, Isaac Mizrahi Danny DeVito Barry Sonnenfeld, the director His daughter Chloe, Sylvester Stallone Dionne Warwick, Newt Gingrich, Anthony Robin George Lucas and executive producer Steven Spielberg As well as the one and only If you look carefully you can spot him there Captain Nick Because you know Sometimes you got to be from another planet, right? Nano nano. The film was going to be set in an underground bases, uh, in underground bases and locations across the country, including Kansas, DC, and Nevada. But Barry Sonnenfeld made New York City the film's main Earth location because he thought it would be more believable that aliens could hide out in a large city because of safety in numbers, um, and he thought that New Yorkers would be more tolerant of people who behaved oddly, uh, who were in fact aliens in disguise. He also felt that many of the city structures resembled flying saucers and rocket ships, which could be real spacecraft and other hidden alien technology. And, of course, as you look at it, I think for, for the reasons he was looking for, he made exactly the right choice. New York is a perfect spot for this kind of story. Um, every week we find a little bit of improv to talk about in the Captain's Film Institute. Will Smith improvised a lot during this film, but the, uh, the, the, the biggest line I think that made it through is, uh, it just be raining black people in New York. And I'm not going to try to do a Will Smith voice on that because that just seems like a good way to get myself into trouble. Um, I always like to look at alter, you know, potential castings for 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 major major films and major roles. You know, these famous, uh, you know, iconic uh, situations. Clint Eastwood was offered the role of Agent K, but turned it down. I just like to take a second to think about how different this movie would have been with Clint Eastwood playing opposite Will Smith instead of Tommy Lee Jones, who has that very dry sense of humor that he was able to get a little goofy with the deeper you got into the film. And who was it, you ask, that almost played Agent J, Will Smith's role? Well, imagine Clint Eastwood playing opposite David Schwimmer. Or Chris O'Donnell. D'Artagnan from the 1990s Disney version of The Three Musketeers or, of course, Robin from Batman and Robin. Linda Fiorentino, who plays the, uh, uh, the morgue doctor... Um, she won her role in Men in Black in a poker game with the director, Barry Sonnenfeld. So I guess they were playing poker, and she said, all right, I'll tell you what, if I win, you got to put me in your next movie. And he said, okay, sounds good. Boom, there she was. And I think she made it through three films as a result of that. I don't know what else she's been in. I should have looked at that. Much of the uh, Men in Black traits and characteristics are in keeping with the established lore of Men in Black in American conspiracy history. For example, supposed encounters with the, with the Men in Black With the MIBs, witnesses report that they use outdated jokes and vernacular, and that their dress and vehicle seems to be outdated as well. In the Chinese restaurant scene, Agent K tells James, be there or be square, which is an expression that was very out of place in a mid-1990s conversation. One more nearly situation for this film before we go ahead and close things out. Um, The director of this film was nearly Quentin Tarantino. Go ahead and wrap your head around that for a minute, huh? Quentin Tarantino could have directed The Men in Black. How different would that have been, huh? All right, ladies and gentlemen, my brain is tired. That is all the show i prepared for you tonight. We'll talk next week about season three of Nonsense, the show. Maybe we'll get some micronations in. Maybe we'll have some entries for the captain's bounty. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate you all. Tell your friends, beardandbonesgmail.com, beardandbones on the Instagram. Talk to you next week. I love you. Goodbye.
2: Oh, Meter. Don't take no shots, I don't use a reverb Asian, I don't even play the radio neither Only if I need to know the spokes or the weather I'm a cool type of brother, but yep, your head, I sever from the neck See, ain't nothing changed, hit the stage Set a date, sucker, in battle, we can't engage I'll slice you, wipe you Marry you, divorce you, throw the Porsche at you. It's what I'm forced to do with my back against the wall. Crack his back, y'all. Nah, it ain't went nowhere like heavy hair with styling jail in it. Throw a curl in it, thread that nappy shit up, throw a shell in it. Whatever floats your boat, I find your lost remote. And this is for them niggas working at the airport who got laid off. I take my shades off. If you look straight in my eyes, you still might see your disguise. That's because the whole world, world. world. shine, glitter, glisten, gloss, floss. I get to beat running like brandy Moss, ride that bitch off like a brand new house, I'm rolling my stones, down to no mouth mommy I'm coming, I hope you get off, I'll rock your own boat like a leer and talk, back, back, forth, forth, get that cellar on course, course, make that track of corpse, corpse, rap, roll, utterly rock with my mouth to the mic and my hand on my cock, Cadillac, outcast, this won't stop, the whole world loves it when you It's looking dismal. Went in the bathroom, minutes the cabin, pepped a dismal. Need it for my stomach, cause my tummy kinda aches like a junkie on the draw fresh up off the plate. Wait, back to the enemy of the state, is the Republicans or Democratic candidate? Debate? Now even the black box hold the fate. Clueless like Shea and Scooby before commercial break. Hey, extreme prejudice, Mr. dismiss this. If you want to, you can dub it to your hit list. I know you're going to. We in this replenish your musical wish list. When it comes to this music, we say relentless. Pursuing all that's pursuable. Doing God, winning all things that are doable. Your only liable limitation is yourself, Dre. Set it on the right, and I'll set it on the left. It's up. the
1: house